Hey everyone, it's Mike. Because things seem to be changing every hour, every minute uh, right now as it relates to the U.S. election, I wanted to flag that we recorded this episode uh, on November 5th uh, at around 3 p.m., which is definitely before the president's most recent press conference uh, given uh, in the evening of the 5th, which saw many major networks cutting away and has been described as uh, his most dishonest moment. So we don't discuss that press conference uh, specifically in this episode, but I think that there's many things that we do discuss that uh, would apply. So uh, with that, uh, thank you for listening, and here's the episode. Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season four, we focus on big ideas that will change our profession. Today, we discuss the presidential election in the United States. With friend of the pod, David Moskrop, we're asking ourselves what the election's impact will be on the rule of law, lawyer ethics, and democracy more broadly. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tanelli. Oh, I hit the post, Darlene. Did you hear that? Sort of, meaning the... Basically, I finished my intro right where our theme song ended. Okay. And that was a mouthful. That was a mouthful because I was laughing, thinking, good Lord, that's a large and weighty topic for the lawyer yes. pod. <laughs> we normally confine ourselves to more, uh, you know, a mixture of weightiness and, and uh, lightness. But today we're going to be mostly over on the uh, talking about the hard things, right? Yeah, just in case you all out there haven't got your fill of U.S. election uh, information, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I have a lot. It's weird. We're in Canada, so that's important to say because we're kind of spectators, but we're also impacted as any many countries around the world are. But uh, by the way, the United States goes. So we're recording this on Thursday. Um, election day being Tuesday, I found myself on Wednesday uh, just so drawn to checking the news so often I had to block myself for I would say, okay, for the next 60 minutes, you're not allowed. And I and that worked sometimes and it didn't other times. So uh, more election content, but this will be unique election content because as I said, friend of the pod, is this the first friend of the pod? I mean, Catherine, we have a few friends of, Chang, the friend of the pod, Sarah Robertson. Oh, yeah, Captain Sarah Chang, Robertson, part of the pod. David yeah. Moskrop. We're good. Yeah. We're getting a, a good group of friends. A trifecta. Yes. Yeah. What a nice dinner party that would be. We should... Uh, <laughs> it would be. When we're all allowed in the same room together, we'll, we'll maybe work that out. Um, at any rate, so David uh, is here. As many of you might know, he was in an episode a while back, a book club, uh, that uh, featured basically his book, Too Dumb for Democracy. And we talked about um, the strength and weaknesses of our current democracy. And and so this will kind of be an update to that episode um, through the context of the uh, presidential election. Before we get there, Darlene, how are you feeling about all this? Well, I think it's, uh, I'm feeling ups and downs. And I, I think that for me, the reason we're podcasting about it is just that I'm trying to focus on, okay, look what we're watching. Look what has uh, built into a crescendo from a number of very predictable factors that I've been following, we've all been following for many years. And I'm looking at it as someone who has a law degree and an ability to hopefully get involved and analyze some of this stuff and make change. So the, the point for me is when I was watching all this, I thought, let's talk to David about how we are going to go forward from here. Because I think when we did the book club, we were looking at some some really interesting things that he was pointing out from his academic work about how people were not able anymore to process all this political information properly and sort of looking at how people make decisions. That's who I want to talk to when watching, <laughs> while we're watching play out, mm. which brings up a lot. So rather than being uh, you know, a partisan podcast per se, we're really looking at the underpinnings of what's going on and where this takes us going forward as lawyers in particular. Well said. Um, so with that, I think I'll do David's bio and then we'll get in the conversation with him. 
So David Moskop is a political theorist and Shirk postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communications at the University of Ottawa. He studies democratic deliberation, political decision-making, and digital media. He's also a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, a writer for McLean's Magazine, and a few other outlets. And he provides regular political commentary for TV, radio, and print. His first book, Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones, came out in March 2019 to great acclaim. Uh, lovely book, um, I can confirm. And without further ado, here is David. Hello, friends. Hello. Welcome back. Hello, friend. It's nice to be back. It's nice to be anywhere these days, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you presumably in the place you've been for the last seven, eight months? I very much am, and because I'm mm. high risk, I, I for, because of a lung thing, I am very much in this place. So I, I haven't, I haven't actually seen anybody since March. No joke. Wow. wow. I ran into one friend outside my building, and we talked for sort of ten minutes. But I have not hung out with anybody since March. Uh, virtually, yes. Yeah. But not, uh, not face to face. And I see that uh, appearance-wise, you're certainly embracing the COVID beard and long hair. I started growing my beard and hair uh, at the end of the federal election in Canada last October because I was sort of had just been sick of all the television. I was just going to grow it out, and then the pandemic hit around the time I'd usually cut them, and then I just decided to go with it. So here we are, eleven, thirteen months into this. And they just keep letting me do stuff. You know, it's extraordinary. And we we on a different podcast we can talk about sexism and, and patriarchy, but they just keep letting me on television. Nobody says anything about your hair. I look, I look absolutely <laughs> insane, but nobody. You know, the comments are generally kind of playful. It hasn't cost me anything. It's it is such a it's it's such a racket. Kind of adds to maybe it's like your academic intellectual. It's it's your look. It's your maybe becoming more on brand. I, I guess at this point, I'm just sort of seeing how much of it I can get away with. <laughs> but again, I mean, it, it speaks to sort of the stuff I was talking about in my book. All of these these you know often prejudicial markers that we let pass for some people but not others, right? Yeah, I think. And when people see you, they're like, "Oh, that caveman speaks like a professor." <laughs> yep. That's a very yep. impressive caveman. <laughs> yep. The stuff we let Where do they find this white guy? men with university degrees get away with is absolutely bonkers. That's a good transition to uh, the other bonkers things. And you know what? Maybe let's get into it. And I'm going to try to really get a nice segue going. You just talked about norms of appearance. And now why don't we talk about adherence to norms and rule of law as leaders and candidates uh, uh, in this instance in the United States. One thing we wanted to dis discuss with you is how weird everything has gotten um, over the last few weeks. One certain candidate uh, playing a lot with uh, norms, uh, to put it lightly, and also um, his adherence to the rule of law. So what are your thoughts on the impact of that, David? Oof. Well, I mean, one thing to remember is that a lot of the bad behavior that you see play out at the the mass level is often a reflection of elite signals and cues that, you know, people might think things, they might believe things, they might have preferences that are deeply problematic, but when they become, you know, mutated to the point where they start doing extraordinary damage it's often because they've been activated by elites which is to say people in positions of power and a good example is the 2020 election in which uh, donald trump has very specifically sort of reached out to try to generate those those grievances or exacerbate those grievances and mobilize them against the election and electoral integrity and so that's what you're seeing that said in in the united states and in many countries there's often countervailing forces that spring into action. And we've seen those. Now, some of those forces are partisan, like the Democratic Party and its own interests. Others are state-based, like judges, um, clerk county, you know, or county clerks, uh, you know, secretaries of state who may be Democrats or Republicans or whatever, who then push back. And so on, on balance, while I'm deeply concerned about what we're seeing, I'm actually a little bit reassured by the countervailing forces that have sprung into action. 
Yeah. So one of the things I have been wondering and watching this play out is when you talk about norms and all the people who need to know what they are, be aware of them, execute on them. What I keep seeing is one party is looking at the norms for the purposes of compliance. And one is just looking at where they can blast through them. And it is, I think, so shocking for people like us who were trained to observe the laws, look at them. Um, it, it's just jarring to see that there's such a long game being played on breaking those norms and laws, just just ignoring them and steamrolling through them. Um, what's What kicks that off, do you think? Well, I mean, it depends. It's usually people, right? It's usually someone or some group comes along for some reason and decides that they're going to push things. And it's happened, you know, a number of times in U.S. history going back to the late 18th century. So it's not like this is new. In fact, as a rule, I was tweeting about this the other day. If someone asks, has America ever been this X? The answer is yes. Right. <laughs> right? Divided, racist, sexist, whatever. You know, but someone called Trump the, the, the most racist president in, in U.S. history. In fact, I think it might have been Joe Biden. Uh, there were presidents who owned people, right? Like they, they fought. There were presidents who supported the institution of slavery. People have short memories, but... You know, in the recent case, you saw the growth of toxic polarization in the United States starting in the 1980s, 1990s. And that was a concerted decision to try to distinguish Republicans and Democrats and to do whatever it took to um, hamstring Democrats. And if you look to, say, Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House of the United States in the 1990s and is still around, that was part of his strategy. It's part of his contract with America part of his support of the Reagan administration and his opposition to the Clinton administration. So when you see Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell say in 2000, in the mid 2000s, our number one goal is to make Barack Obama a one term president. He's echoing a lot of what Newt Gingrich was trying to do with Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And that started in the sort of late 70s, 80s. Because if you go way back to the sort of post-war era in the United States, the Republicans and the Democrats were broadly similar. They were liberals. Both Republicans and Democrats were liberals. Then the, then some folks decided that they wanted to make the Republicans more conservative. Right. And that was sort of the beginning of all that. Some of the same people back in the 70s, I guess, that are still on the scene today and just have a very long yep. view of how long it's going to take to turn the ship. Amazing. Yeah, and and, and who are committed to, to it. Um and, you know, look at the Senate and things like budget showdowns or the use of the filibuster or cloture motions and things like that. You can see this stuff ramp up. You could chart it and say, OK, this is how many times we saw the filibuster. This is how many times we saw cloture. This is how many times we saw the, the Congress deny an appointment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see the numbers trending up, a sort of tit for tat, you know, back and forth. That said, if you look and see, okay, who's doing it more often? It's Republicans. You know, we, we try to have a kind of both sides thing sometimes when we look at this stuff. But the, the fact is the overwhelming majority of instances of norm breaking are Republicans. That's just what the data tells us. On that note, I mean, we, we don't really have to look a lot further than the uh, appointment of the most recent Supreme Court justice in the U.S. to uh, yep. kind of see how norms are different based on for for the Republicans in this instance, yep. um, based on where they're sitting. I think in another way, we I guess part of that is also um, when they break a norm when you know, let's say the Republicans in this instance break a norm, often accompanied by that is an explanation that's based on let's say an alternate set of facts, I think, as Kellyanne Conway once put it, uh, alternate facts. Uh, I think really, and, and this is off discussed, but I'm wondering what your take is on it. When we look at the election and what folks are saying in exit polls, and when they're asked about why they voted for the candidate they did, oftentimes we hear stuff that isn't true, or that there's an alter that there's kind of an alternate universe that these folks are living in with the information that they're being given. Um, can you speak about that and its impact? 
Well, I mean, so we have this idea of the of the voter. This is what I write about in my book. The sort of dispassionate, rational, calculative machine that weighs the platforms, weighs the issue positions, weighs the retrospectively the performance of, of candidates, but also future looks and says, okay, how would this other candidate do? And then, you know, basically calculates, tabulates and makes a decision. That's not how it works. <laughs> it's, basically how, it's basically how nothing works uh, when it comes to politics and very few things work outside of politics. It might be how you choose a car, you know, under ideal circumstances, but it's not really how democracy works. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. And so when you sort of delve into uh, what people say, you find that it's actually at odds with, with what the research tells us. And people end up rationalizing their way ex post facto rather than reasoning their way to a conclusion. And if you look at the exit poll data, which by the way, I mean, there's some people saying, Oh, it's not, it's incomplete because uh, of the mail-in ballots. The, there's exit poll data that has factored in uh, absentee voters and uh, early voters. So in fact, there's good exit poll data. Uh, the New York times has, has some of it up. Uh, what you see is that Republicans turned out and voted Republican again, and Democrats turned out and voted Democrat again. Right. And there was a bunch of new voters, too, who broke largely Democrat, but the partisan identity of folks was on display. And there's a great book called Democracy for Realists, written by uh, Aiken and Bartels, and they sort of say, okay, yeah, the fundamental thing in American politics is identity-based you know, social uh, groups. Yeah that break politically one way or the other. And that drives most of American politics. And it's not just that people are choosing their parties because of the issue positions. They're choosing their issues because of party positions. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's going the other way. It's what one political scientist, J. Scott Math or uh, Mark um, Pickup and, and his colleague called reversing the causal arrow. You would expect in a good democracy, people to choose their politicians based on the issues, but it's not that people are choosing their issues based on politicians. And so that's why you see this weird stuff sort of percolating more broadly in the exit polls and in, in how people are voting, including when it comes to the Republicans, mainly a lot of um, xenophobia, racism, uh, sexism, uh, you know, anti-communist rhetoric that Trump fuels. Uh, so anti-communist sentiment. And that was a sort of story, for instance, in, in Florida, especially in Miami-Dade County, where the Republicans did a lot of work trying to rabble-rouse around anti-Castro, anti-socialist rhetoric that was sort of unhinged from reality. <sighs> well, I think that, you know, if we, if we both think back, there's a lot of sighing in this episode. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, why does that follow <laughs> me around? Why does it always happen when I'm in a room? Well, I think these are, these are tough topics. I think um, what you're pointing out is sort of the four years later follow on to that comment that Donald Trump made that you can, he could just shoot someone on Fifth Avenue or what, you know, I'm, I'm misquoting, but you, that was a, a famous thing he said. And truthfully, what I've witnessed and felt a little bit, um, you know, saddened by, I suppose would be the, the simple way to say it, is that I think that that's accurate in many ways um, for his base. And I also think that it is this concept that as long as your team is going to crush the other guy, that's what you're voting for. So it doesn't even matter at, an, at that point what the policies are, because I think they're, the policies that are being supported by the Democrats, you know, bailouts for people who don't have uh, employment through the pandemic, um, you know, $15 federal middle minimum wage, they have some pretty solid uh, policies in place. And so uh, to help people who swung largely Republican. So I don't know, I, I think there's something to be said for, for that partisan um, divide that you're saying. And a lot of what I was witnessing in the, in the election was that that partisan divide is urban rural and and also mm -hmm. is driven by these alternate media universes now so i think when i was watching the debate for example i was thinking huh i think that biden won the debate but is that because the news i read indicates to me that he's making truthful zingers right whereas if i only watched the news that a trump voter watches 
I might be like, yeah, that's that point I saw on Fox yesterday. So he's right. So he got a zinger. Like, do I, can I even assess who won the debate if I'm from the wrong, you know, from a different media universe than the other candidate? I don't know. That stuff to me was the, was a, uh, something I became aware of almost watching it play out. And it seems to support what you're saying that you just are constantly building up your own partisan identity and then voting. <laughs> is that, is that sum it up? Yeah. Yeah. Your own, your own partisan world. Right. And I mean, you know, people worry and hand wring a lot about echo chambers and filter bubbles that people are only getting the news here, there, you know, not everywhere. But the fact is that data, the data suggests that that's probably overstated, but it also doesn't really matter all that much because if you're a partisan, and not everybody is, but a lot of people, especially in the U.S. are, and you are, you know, a diehard partisan, which again, lots of folks are, uh, you know, the sort of architecture of your mind will be set up in such a way as to be able to filter all this stuff out after the fact anyway, mm-hmm. and and to, you know, or, or apply lenses that will facilitate you seeing your side rosy and the other side not so rosy and you know look no further than twitter to, to see that in action right i mean if you you know i, I play my tent my feed is sort of heterodox on twitter but not not all that much i try to mix it up but it's hard and you can see people's reaction to things and then you go check that against what the general public is saying and it's two different worlds and which is a reminder that twitter is is the real world, but it's not the whole real world, you know? <laughs> um, and that's true uh, on, on aggregate too, with lots of folks. And we forget that the United States is a, a conservative country with lots of rural folks. You mentioned ur- the urban rural divide. Uh, there's also economic divides. There's also racial divides. There's also gender divides. There's also sexuality divides. There, there's obviously partisan divides. There's all these cross cutting uh, divides and, and they do produce different sorts of, of lenses and, and worlds for folks. And that plays out. And in some ways that you want that to play out because you want there to be a sort of pluralist battle in the public sphere. But the problem is it becomes so identity based and toxic that it fuels a really scary politics um, and, and, and often policies that that match that. And, you know, you're seeing that routinely play out. But I'll, I'll close on this point. <laughs> One of the bigger problems is there was a study a few years ago by um, Gillens and Page, peer-reviewed stuff, that looked at policies from the Carter administration up to the Obama administration and found that the vast majority of policies, federal policy and law, served the wealthiest folks and not everyone else. And and that sometimes there was overlap, but if there was a conflict between what the wealthy wanted and what the non-wealthy, the poor wanted, the wealthy won. So across party, there's a bigger problem that lurks beyond all this, which is class-based politics, where the upper class is getting wins and the and everyone else is is losing. It's not great. But interestingly, the upper class is, is being bolstered in those efforts by the very people that they are harming the most. You know? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s, there was a lot of study into this. Thomas Frank wrote a book, What's the Matter with Kansas?, it was trying to understand why Kansas went from from blue to red, um, you know, why Reagan Democrats existed in, in the 1980s and, and what it was about, you know, that folks would seemingly vote against their class interests. And part of the answer is that people's preferences are more complicated than just their class interest. They, they might correlate in many cases. And if you look at the exit polls from this election, if you, you know, saw yourself as better off economically now than you were uh, you voted Trump. If you were making more than $100,000 a year, something like 74, 75% of those folks broke Trump versus, you know, everyone else went Biden. So you can see that st- those those correlates play out. But, you know, that doesn't explain everything. There are other cultural, con- you know, moral considerations that, that people feel deeply passionate yep. about, right? So there's, so that's, you know, um, a woman's right to choose is, a, is an example of that. You know, we might look at this and say, oh, that's a no brainer. Come on. But for a lot of Americans, it's not. And so uh, so that's part of it. And for a lot of Canadians, for that matter, too. Uh, so that's part of it. Another part of it is Trump four years ago played the sort of nationalist, we're going to bring the jobs back to the Rust Belt, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and so on. Uh, and people bought that. 
You know, we're going to bring coal jobs back. We're going to bring manufacturing jobs back. We're going to launch trade wars against China to make sure that it happens. Um, and, and people bought that because they were desperate. And Clinton wasn't even trying to sell it. Not really. Uh, of course, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> but they bought it. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the narratives was, oh, that didn't happen. So, so folks abandoned Trump. I'm not convinced that's true. Looking at the, you know, the data, it sort of seems to suggest that what's going to unseat Trump if he indeed loses is new voters turning out, not old voters switching. Yeah, it seemed like um, for the most part, what the numbers are showing is that, you know, old voters felt like that's our guy. He's on our team. We're sticking with him, Um, you know, despite any potential non-delivery of what he promised. But as you said, that's not often how people vote. Um, One thing on the team uh, point of view that I'm interested in discussing is we're getting to the point where we're going to see some action in the courts um, because uh, Trump's team is uh, challenging some results and plans, I think, still to go to the Supreme Court. Um, And on that, that's where lawyers obviously start to get to work. Um, And and on that point, I'm just interested in your perspective on what sort of what sort of ethics a lawyer should employ in this example, and and especially as it gets to those making the decisions, the judges and justices that might um, have to do so, they might have been appointed by somebody on a certain team, so to speak, or even a, might be a member of a certain team. Um, how do <laughs> how do you see that playing out? Um, when the law might pull them in one way, but politics might pull them another. Yeah, I mean, this is a fundal, a fundamental question of, of 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 American, you know, legal and partisan life, and the the fact that those two are mixed up so much compared to other countries, especially compared to Canada, um, you know, is is deeply problematic. I mean, you know, you might say, look, all of this stuff is political, but it doesn't have to be partisan. Right. We sort of admit that the Supreme Court in Canada, for instance, is political, obviously, but it's not partisan. And there seems to, you know, there's no real concern that it that it has been or will be in the U.S. That's not true. We sort of routinely talk about um, votes coming down along partisan lines, including, for instance, the, the 2000 Bush v. Gore decision that gave the, the presidency to Bush uh, by stopping a Florida recount that broke 5-4 on partisan lines. Uh, so far, so far, <laughs> uh, looking at the, the judicial decisions prior to the election and the ones that we're seeing now, you sort of see mixed evidence. But on balance, I think it's actually pretty encouraging stuff that mostly uh, there's a big diversity of judges and of courts. And they seem to be making, you know, more or less consistent calls to, to respect the the rule of law and norms around ballots being cast and vote and, and um counted with some exceptions it's more the state legislatures that i worry about who had been setting rules that affected ballots being counted so it was less the judges and more the state legislatures so that the fundamental problem for me uh, was more that in the u.s you don't have elections canada where you've got a nonpartisan agency that reports to the legislature you've got 50 states that get by the constitution get to set the rules uh, for them and even in within counties that varies (laughs) Uh, and that's sort of one of those fundamental problems. But I mean, on the ethical question of, you know, which way should a judge break or a lawyer break when they're trying to to make decisions about elections? It's obviously it should be that, uh, you know, you serve the, the Constitution, the country, not the president, not a party. Right. But obviously it doesn't always play out that way. Because to go back to this, we sometimes think that lawyers and judges don't rationalize. You know, they're the ultimate reasoning machines. Uh... <laughs> yes, but I think the interesting thing here, which I think has been only a footnote, is that there, you know, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett both acted on the Bush case for Bush. Yep. Right? Like, wasn't that the... Yeah, and, you know, it, the Bush case, for instance, part of that ruling was, oh, this only applies to the moment, not later. But, you know, Kavanaugh cited it in a recent decision, right? And so, uh, yeah, you, you, it, it's, it's, and it's fun, you know, we could have a different discussion in a different case in Canada, you know, for instance, whether or not former Supreme Court justices ought to be doing 
work that could be seen as partisan because I think a lot of people were concerned about that. But in the U.S., I mean, one of the concerns is the partisan work that these folks do before they're appointed to the ju- to the bench, mm-hmm. right? And and you can see it playing out. Barrett, Coney Barrett, and, and Kavanaugh are great examples of that. Um, and again, it goes back to norms because you know McConnell uh, made sure that Obama didn't get a chance to put Merrick Garland on the bench as he was leaving. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there was the McConnell rule, which doesn't really exist. But then when it came to Coney Barrett, boy, he flipped real fast. But this is, I think, what's so concerning. And when we consider that, you know, Mike and I went to school to learn how to apply law and here's the system and this is how it works. And the past four years have been a full education in where the breaks, where the breaking points are, you know, and what was just because and what is actually enshrined and how vulnerable so many of these things are. Like I was looking at the governors in the swing states um, today and just realizing, oh, okay, well, you know, it is a much bigger fight in the, in the states that have a democratic governor, for example. What would have happened if they didn't, you know, where there are so many checks and balances to something that you said right off the top of the podcast. There are a lot. This is a very complicated thing to watch as a spectator. But what I'm interested in as a just as a member of the legal profession and judges and lawyers are in that boat, what we're seeing play out from my perspective is a flurry of lawsuits. I think the I think the headline right before we started recording on the Washington Post was Trump campaign starts legal blitz. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I was reminded of an interview that Mike and I did with Bob Ray, who is um, now Canada's ambassador to the UN, but at the time um, was in private practice and had a long life in politics here in Canada. And he had said as advice to lawyers, you know, as a lawyer, it's really important that you, you not be allow yourself to be used as what he said was a blunt instrument that you sort of have some mm-hmm. ethics about the positions that you're in or you're taking. And I see on this just a lot of a lot of the best of our profession playing out. So I was reading about the NAACP, for example, filing like same day responses to briefs and things, which reading about in the paper sounds impressive, but having worked on things like that is beyond amazing, that turnaround time. Um, so the, there are a lot of lawyers here fighting a really good fight. And I think both sides, you know, I think there are lawyers um, as part of the legal blitz on both sides who feel they're fighting the good fight, right? I guess the question is, once partisanship is so baked into it, is it still just advocating for your client the way that we were taught? Or is this something new and different? And once this is new and different, you know, what, I mean, we can't predict here, but I see it as like, okay, well, now what? Oh, now yeah. What after this? Oh, yeah. But I mean, this is the encouraging thing. I think you're right. I mean, there's, there are no doubt there's lawyers who are doing what they see as their duty and for their country. Uh, some of them are maybe rationalizing, some of them may not. But I think on balance, it's encouraging to see the, the clearly, you know, Adeline lawsuits are failing, right? And you, you'll see some of them succeed. You might even see a recount, for instance, in Wisconsin, which, you know, might be appropriate. But on balance, I think you're seeing some pretty encouraging results, although not universally. But that's a reminder that the U.S., one of the virtues of U.S. democracy is that it's decentralized. Mm-hmm. And it becomes pretty hard to, you know, pick off a dozen states at a time or half a dozen states at a time or, you know, two dozen or three dozen counties at a time because you've got to file all these different suits. And the hope is that, at least when it gets bad like this, that there's enough distribution of common sense and good reasoning and good and good lawyers and good judges that um, there's a sort of buffer. And, of course, the Supreme Court, everyone pays attention to the Supreme Court, but, of course, there's lots of courts and in fact, one of the critiques that people were raising about, you know, the Trump uh, administration was that everyone was concerned about his Supreme Court appointments. But, you know, there were a lot of lower court appointments that didn't get as much attention that probably should have. Uh, and there's a lot of action there. But so far, the lower courts seem to be standing up pretty well. And I think there's good reason to think they'll continue to, which is extraordinarily encouraging. One of the reasons why I asked the question about, you know, the role of the lawyer here is is because in so many instances, this does come down to 
individuals that are in positions of power, but also it's about their ethic, their ethic and, you know, their decision to stick to norms and to stick to the rule of law in the face of some difficult, um, implications or you know when you when you know there might be some some negative consequences that flow from that and and i think that is an exciting thing to see put into action uh for sure so on that i guess on this overall sort of theme do you think that this experience that we're all going through um you know this pressure test of uh the one of the world's most important democracies uh, is going to make things worse for for democracy around the world, potentially better because we've seen the you know if, if if we get through this and there is a result that's accepted, uh, is it good to have that pressure test? What's your take? I, I mean, I I think if you can avoid the pressure test when it comes to democracy, it's, it's probably best, (laughs) you know, uh, that doesn't mean you're not going to have to, uh, live, you know, experience a pressure test from time to time. Plainly you do. And it's funny that sometimes these moments, you know, show up later down the line in ways you'd prefer that they didn't. I'll give you a, for instance, you know, in the 1970s, when Watergate was unfolding, Nixon, uh, pulled off the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, right? And, and I mean, this was seen at the time as as one of the sort of big turning points um, in tests of U.S. Uh, institutions. You know, when the president ordering his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor, right? right? Uh, but the attorney general resigned. He said, not a chance. Mm-hmm. So Nixon went on down the line. Well, you know who finally did it? Robert Bork who ended up being Ronald Reagan's Supreme Court nominee, whom the Democrats blocked, right. along with some Republicans. And then later, when Mitch McConnell tried to block Garland, uh, one of the things he talked about was Robert Bork. <laughs> and and later talked about Robert Bork again when Amy Coney Barrett uh, was up. He's saying, look, the Democrats would do the same thing. Look at, remember, Robert Bork. You know, these things have, a, these tests sometimes linger. So, you know, you prefer to not do them. But from time to time, you have no choice. Uh, I would say American democracy is not indicative of the health of democracy around the world as a rule. American democracy is often extraordinarily ill uh, and routinely has been in crisis from pretty much day one. So, you know, we, we often there's a disconnect between how we sort of lionize or mythologize American democracy and what it really is in practice. That said, it, it might recover. A Biden administration would probably go a long way towards trying to rebuild it, but only if they took seriously the structural problems, which would include, you know, legal reform and so on and so forth. But also, I would say that the redistribution of resources to some extent, because, you know, democracies are vulnerable when inequality rises. It's a great predictor of, of serious trouble and decline. And that's true of a lot of places around the world. Nonetheless, globally, democracy right now is in a fairly fragile place. And what really worries me is that we'll look at the crisis of inequality and not do anything about it. We'll look at the crisis, the climate crisis, and not do enough fast enough. And those things will start to stack. And then when the going gets real tough, which it will sooner rather than later, you know, in the 2030s, 2040s, certainly by the 2050s, if we haven't done enough, then those institutions will be tested. And I worry that they sort of crumble in the face of th- those big crises that will be brought about by rising inequality and climate and the climate crisis. Um, you know, and, and once that happens, then forget about it, you know, cause as I talked about in the book, democracy is extraordinarily difficult to build up. Yeah. It's tricky to maintain. It's pretty easy to lose. Yeah. I think, uh, inserts, uh, additional sigh here, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I think it, it's an interesting, overview when you think back to Watergate and stuff like that and how we all grew up with that as such a scandal and it just pales in comparison to what we see almost daily. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's quite something. So I think the thing that I'm going to take away um, from what you just said is that there's still someone who's got to make the call, you know, someone who mm-hmm. has to file the lawsuit. You know, I looked at a lawsuit in one of the counties in the U.S. and um, it was filed based on the eyewitness evidence of a poll watcher 
And the judge is like, where's your evidence? You know, show me some evidence that that backs this up. And there wasn't any, and he threw it out. And, you know, lawyers make calls all the time about whether it's a specious case that they're going to bring or not. And um, I think we do have that, that muscle that we can use. And one of the things Mike and I talk about so often on this podcast is that, you know, always kind of being in a mentally, uh, you know, a good, good spot in your life that when, when you get asked to do something on the wrong side of things, you're, you can say no, you know, whether because Mm -hmm. of the work you've done on your personal side of your life or because you haven't overstretched yourself financially or gotten into some, you know, addiction or debt or whatever. Um, There are lots of reasons that lawyers have to maintain like fit, mental, spiritual condition. And one of them is this one that you get presented with these choices. And, um, you know, I think it's not to say that, you know, for this is so partisan and people are potentially acting on what they're on both sides are acting on what they feel is right. But I think to me, it's just the imperative is how do we get, how do we make sure that there is some even with all these alternate realities and alternate facts and all this stuff that's been blown up, you know, how do we as lawyers take a step out of that? (laughs) Totally. And it's worth remembering that, I mean, again, looking back at, at, say, you know, Watergate, one of the things that brought Nixon down, I mean, it took a long time. It didn't come easy and it was only sort of towards the end. But there were people who said, okay, enough's enough, we can't do this, including Republicans and lots of lawyers who finally who made the right call, right? They eventually did the right thing and they abandoned the president and that was the end of Richard Nixon. You, you know, you'll, you'll recall the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to turn over the Watergate tapes and he did, minus a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I, and I, I do think Republicans, at least some of them, I'm not saying Trumpism is going away, but I do think that Republicans will abandon Trump at some point um, it went, it, when things really get bad, uh, you know, now. And you saw some of that the other night when Trump was trying to declare victory and uh, mm-hmm. he tried to declare victory in the early hours of November 4th. Um, Republicans, by and large, just said no. And the media <laughs> you know? as well. No, I, the media was helpful yeah. on that from my perspective. They were saying falsely were so claims, you know, falsely claims, right? Like that's an important word to, to add totally. there. Totally. And I watched, um, so I watched the CNN feed uh, and, you know, CNN was sort of routinely saying uh, all the votes will be counted. These are early votes. These votes are real. You know, John King's line was like, these are real votes, but you don't have the full context. And, and, and I found the media was extraordinarily well behaved. They were responsible. They were very careful about how they were framing things. They were very quick to call things out. Twitter uh, would tag Trump's tweets, would block them. Uh, you'd had to click, you know, view tweet mm-hmm. after reading a disclaimer about how the, it was basically bogus, right? <laughs> right? So there, there was a, a pushback that was that was encouraging. I mean, obviously, we have a big discussion to have about technology and and democracy. Uh, more to talk about with partisanship and so on. But uh, it seems to me that the this extraordinary stress test of American democracy has damaged the America in the process. America was already damaged. It's damaged it's further. But but the Republic is not exactly going to collapse from this. Okay. Well, speaking of not collapsing, I think we're all still standing after that conversation. Um, and uh, we're going to take a break, catch our breath, uh, and come back with our goods and gripes. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. Friend of the pod, David Muscrop. Do you want to go first? I do. This is a general holiday-based good that I am hopelessly biased over, so full disclosure, I'm rationalizing here. People are putting up their, their holiday decorations early, 
I was seeing this stuff pop up all over the place. And it's, I, I just, I love it. It's, it's bringing me a little <laughs> bit of hope in a dark time. I've got my, my Velociraptor statue's got a little Santa hat on. I've got the pine candles out. My little sad Christmas, Charlie Brown Christmas wow. tree is up. And I, I'm seeing this trend sort of here and there. And it's really, it's, it's like, it seems like a silly little good, but it's actually really quite nice. Usually I sort of lament the season pushing, but this year there's something very nice about it. And, and I hope through, as the season progresses that you, you see lots of a, a return of the sort of mutual aid and solidarity moment that we saw early in the pandemic, because I think the holiday is going to be extraordinarily difficult for a lot of folks especially if things are going bad and we can't see one another. So I, I, I'm seeing this sort of like this, this looming mutual aid solidarity and acceptance that we got to do what we got to do, for instance, putting up our holiday decorations. And I see, uh, I choose to see it through the lens of the good. And it's, it's giving me a little bit of hope. I have a holiday related good as well about the holiday that just passed. I don't, maybe it's not a holiday, whatever Halloween is. Um, and also in the same way of people kind of doing really well for others um in our area we were the kids were allowed to trick-or-treat i have young kids so we went out to about five or six houses um but the whole neighborhood without i don't maybe i just missed like the memo on it but everybody had a table out with individually packaged candy headed chair six feet behind so they could still see the kids it was perfectly executed across the whole neighborhood and one of um, the older folks that lived near me said that she just wanted to do that because she felt so bad for the kids that they had been through this for the last seven, eight, however long it is, months. Um, and that was really heartwarming and important. And and I would say that, uh, you know, those folks gave my kids a really nice night. And so that was great, too, in a similar way. Wow. I didn't get the holiday related. Uh, <laughs> Big city, Darlene. <laughs> Memo, yeah. Okay. I have a gripe. Um, I just wish that we came up with a word for a, a past tense sending of a text message. Like I still, you know, when people are like, I texted you. I just really don't like that. It doesn't seem like a word we should Why? use. <laughs> texted. I texted you. It just still, it should be like, it feels like it's not a word at all and i don't like it do you have sent a, a text do you have a problem with i say sent a text but that feels a little bit too formal so it just like i don't know i wish there was some out there messaged can you just say messaged yeah, you could say i messaged you i sms you i think this goes down to a broader issue with texting for you you're not into oh i'm text. terrible at it i don't like it yeah i think yeah you're right just in general I'm very anti-text <laughs> i think present or past tense you're like not not so great about loving the text. Yeah. Maybe I'm just upset about having to talk about texting. So when I talk about it in the past tense, I'm just predisposed to not like what I'm saying. Maybe that's it. I will say, can I add a gripe about texting? Do you guys both say texted? Is that, sorry, because I really mean yeah. it. Is that, yeah? I texted okay. you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I share, I share your, I, I get a lot of messages every day, just like an unreasonable amount of messages. And they come on, uh, you know, from Instagram, on Facebook, on WhatsApp, on Twitter, on text, uh, it's like on Donner, on Dasher. It, it, it drives me absolutely bonkers. I got to search yeah. for all these stupid mm -hmm. things. So I, I absolutely despise it. But so the word's the least of my problems. You know? <laughs> I find that the text is sort of the loudest mechanism like if if you get texted for whatever reason that's the thing that can get through all the noise the fastest for me in my the way that all my tech is set up because um that is a notification that goes everywhere and i could change it but i don't right. because usually if something's urgent that's where it's coming from so i think that's the issue but i don't know i don't uh, i don't mind texting but i i share the gripe about all of the different uh, platforms that's just crazy making can I share my real gripe, though? Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep this general as to try to be constructive. If you're going to be a retailer, say a big box retailer with an online presence, I need you to make that work. When I, when I place an order and I put in my gift card, because that's the only reason I'm buying from you in the first place, because I happen to have a gift card. And I click all the buttons, I enter my address and my credit card, and then I click purchase, and it doesn't do anything. Uh, I need you to fix that. And then if I go to the app and try to do it at the app, 
and think, oh, maybe it's just my browser. And it's the cookies, maybe, because that's what they tell you. It's the cookie in the browser. And so you go and you do it in the app. And then it still doesn't work. I need you to fix that because I'm just, I just, I'm trying to buy my Christmas tree mug and I've had it up to here, you know? I just got a real window into being like customer support at one of those. But <laughs> it's like, Dave, I mean, need you to fix this. <laughs> David's tapping into one of just, our constant and, and I, messages, which is don't make it hard for people to give you money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm very calm and about it. Like, I have a policy when it comes to dealing with customer service folks, wherever it might be. It's very direct, but calm and polite because it's not their fault. It's not them. They're having a worse day than you probably, right? It's like, and, and this is how we should be with people even when we have trouble. Calm, polite, but firm, right? But when it's just me shouting at my computer, I can say whatever I want and it gets real, <laughs> real nasty, real fast. Um, and, and it's cathartic in its own way, but probably not healthy on balance. But it's just like in this day and age, in 2020, the year of our dog, how can you not have a website that allows me to give you money to buy a product? It's very easy to you could tell me to make one for you right now, David, and I could do it in five minutes, you know? Yeah, if I had anything wow. to sell. You have a book. <laughs> I have a book. Yeah, it's true. Someone else sells that. It sells on Amazon or on Goose Lane, where, by the way, you can go and click one button and get it because it's really easy because those folks have figured it out. But some people, not naming any names, haven't. And it's just put it this way. You can't find a cashier in the store and you can't find a cashier online when it comes to these guys. I think that's a gripe worthy thing is that it's some stores are very much in the balance between going fully online and having like a retail presence just so people know they're out there. And it's I find it very sad shopping in the actual store when it's like, oh, I see this is just a shell to remind me of this brand. (laughs) I see (laughs) there's nothing in here. You know, it's it's uh my husband is new to doing any kind of shopping and he's he's doing it lately and he keeps going to stores and saying, I don't understand. There's nothing in the stores. Like there's no stock in the stores ever. I'm like, yeah, that's that's the situation. <laughs> that's how things are going. Not in grocery stores, but in a lot of stores, I'm, I think that's getting to be more the norm. Anyway, well, we covered a range of topics. <laughs> <laughs> some heavy, some some less heavy. But uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom as usual. And uh, we always are interested in your take, your hot take in this case on the uh, U.S. election results. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dave. Uh, And Darlene, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.